Today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Baseball Podcast. Michael Beller here with Derek Van Riper. Today is Friday, April 3rd. We are chugging right along on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, still bringing you things to think about, to talk about as you get ready for what we hope will be a fantasy baseball season here in 2020. Derek, how you doing today? Doing well, and I, I know that's at this point known to everyone that it's under the you know caveat of as well as we all can be in a situation like this. It's uh it's nice that the weather's been a little nicer in the, the Midwest the last couple of days, so I've been able to get a couple runs in outside. I think that's been really good for my, my mental health, really. Yeah, same here. Uh, my wife and I were on a long walk with the dog yesterday afternoon and uh, saw some people playing catch, which was uh, a very welcome sight. Uh, you know, we'll take baseball in any way that we can get it. We're getting creative about getting uh, getting baseball back into our lives in the ways that we can now. So even just seeing a couple of people out in the park playing catch, uh, dad throwing his kid ground balls, and the kid you know making plays and throwing it to back to his dad as though he's the first baseman. Uh, a welcome sight, certainly. So hopefully we uh, have some real baseball. And no matter what, we're going to talk about some real baseball here. Excited about our guest today. We welcome on Alex Fast. Alex is the VP at PitcherList. Uh, at PitcherList uh, is the full-on website uh, on Twitter that you can follow. Also, you can get Alex at AlexFast8. It's an indispensable resource in the baseball, fantasy baseball community, whatever it is. If you're into baseball, you should be following these guys. Alex, how you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I think I think DVR kind of hit it on the head. I'm I'm doing as uh, as as great as I can be. I'm I'm podcasting live from my parents' basement, which is not something I would ever want to say as a 31 year old male. But I'm I'm happy and and healthy with my wife and 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 lucky. So I'm 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 happy to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now you're you're right in the the fantasy baseball podcaster wheelhouse. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, this is. You're made for this now. Yeah. Right, Mom, if you can hear me, I made it. I made it. <laughs> you can tell her later. You can go upstairs. Yeah. We'll, we'll finish recording. You can go upstairs. And, I did it. Yeah, I you did it, Mom. 20 years ago, you weren't so sure, but I, I'm, I've made it. Yeah, that poor woman had to put up with me being an actor for 10 years and now podcasting from her basement. So I know she's real proud. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, let me tell you something. We here in the uh, in the fantasy baseball community are definitely uh, proud to have you on. We're very happy to uh, be talking about a couple of things uh, that you've written recently uh, that that caught my eye that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, the first, and you can find these both of these articles on uh, Pitcher List, and we'll post them in the uh, in the show description. So uh, those of you listening out there can can check them out after the show, or maybe even pull them up. During the show, the first thing that I want to talk about is something you wrote uh, very recently about put-away rate. It, mm -hmm. It's got a lot to do with strikeout rate. It's got a lot to do with missing bats. But keeping it very simple to start out, what is put-away rate? Yeah, so very simply, it's, a, it's, it's an efficiency metric. How efficient a pitcher is with both a particular pitch and with his entire arsenal. So just to keep it simple also, the higher the better. Higher the PAR, the better. Uh, the formula 
is strikeouts on a certain pitch over how many of those pitches were thrown in two strike counts. That's that's a little not simple. So a simple example that I give is, you know, if Garrett Cole has Hanser Alberto in an 0-2 count and he throws him a curveball that he fouls off and then another curveball that's a ball and then another curveball that gets the K, Garrett Cole's strikeout rate on that curveball is 100%, right? He got one strikeout with his curveball, but his put-away rate is 33%. He threw three two-strike curveballs and got the strikeout with one of them. So it gives you a better idea as to how efficient he was with that particular pitch. I think the interesting thing here, too, is that you you have to get to the two-strike situation to Mm -hmm. have this as well. Like That's kind of a skill in and of itself, right? Because if you were to strip that away, you might be talking about swinging strike rate on a pitch or or whiff rate on a pitch. So is that part of the reason why you like put-away rate is that it, it measures the pitcher's ability to actually get into a situation that's favorable as well? Yeah, definitely. That's kind of built into it. And it, what I, what I kind of love about the metric is it's a metric that elucidates other metrics. You know what I mean? Like I'm very much of the ilk that there should not be one end-all, be-all metric for anyone. So why I like PAR is it helps um, bring to light what's important about other metrics. You, 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 you kind of hit the nail on the head. If I look at simply two strike rate, how, how efficiently a guy is getting to two strikes, and then I look at their put-away rate, that's really important. Uh, was, what, someone who jumps right off the bat is actually Chris Paddock. He's got a great two-strike rate. He can get to two strikes like nobody else. He did it fantastic last year. But his put-away rate was actually relatively low outside of the top 50, all of a sudden that says to me, okay, well, he probably needs a third pitch, which isn't a secret, but a third pitch for him would be really, really helpful to help bridge that gap. Uh, Paddock's a guy that we've actually talked about a lot on this show, on our other show, Fantasy Baseball in 15. Uh, there's been some differences of opinion. I, for one, uh, am pretty high on Chris Paddock. I look at what he did last year, the, the season that he had as a 23-year-old rookie, first exposure to Major League Baseball, and see way more to be excited about than not understanding that we should have some confidence in him developing that third pitch, that what he did last year should suggest to us that let's at least give him the benefit of the doubt and believe that he is going to develop the third pitch rather than assume that this is a finished product, fastball changeup, and a show curveball that doesn't really scare anyone or make hitters think about anything other than the fastball and the changeup. Can you use put-away rate in a way that supports or uh, goes against that line of thinking and maybe not just for Paddock, but for pitchers at large? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, that's a great question. I feel like this definitely highlights how important it is for, for Paddock to have that third pitch. Um, it's kind of, I, I, I can't speak to whether or not that curveball is going to be successful solely based on put away rate because I don't think there's enough data on it. I will say that I I, I went back and forth like, I was like really excited because it was like, oh, once he gets that curveball, he's going to be elite. He changed the shape of the curveball at the end of last year to make it a little more slurvy. It had a little more, I think it was horizontal movement. I could be incorrect about that, but I believe it was. And then in spring training, guys were just spitting on it left and right. I'm not going to take too much away from that. I mean, he's still working on it and getting it right. Uh, But I am a little bit worried about what happens if that doesn't develop. Um uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think the kind of the jury's still out for me on on Paddock here. I think the the broader question here is, what is the stickiness of put away mm-hmm. rates? If a pitcher has a high put away rate with his fastball, let's say, in a particular year, should we expect it to remain high in the following season or maybe two seasons after that, even? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in terms of stickiness, uh, it's stickiness year to year, year over year isn't fantastic. It's actually not as good as K-rate. But that doesn't mean that we should kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. In terms of off-season analysis, we should be looking at PAR's relationship to K-rate to see where there could be theoretical regression. Um, on the other hand, during the season, it takes about 10 starts for it to become reliable, and then it becomes reliable for the rest of the year, which is really exciting because then it it actually becomes a kind of rhythm metric, right? We get to see where a guy gets in rhythm with what particular pitch. Uh, a great example is is Tyler Glasnow, right? He really got in rhythm with that curveball last year, and that's a great thing. But when you look at the PAR in the offseason, knowing that it's not as sticky year over year, that curveball becomes a prime regression candidate and makes me a little less interested in drafting him. That surprised me in your article, the, um, the, 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 the conclusion that uh, it wasn't there. Because just intuitively, I would think that if using Glasnow's curveball as the example, that if this was a great put-away pitch for him one year, an elite put-away pitch for him as it was last year, that it is something that would have stickiness. Maybe not put-away rate as a whole for a, a pitcher's entire arsenal, but for one particular pitch, I thought it was going to have a lot of year-over-year stickiness. I I'm wondering if, A, you went into it with the same, uh, at least, hypothesis, and if that surprised you, and B, if there were any other parts or any anything else to the conclusion where certain pitches did have a, a better stickiness relative to a pitcher's overall arsenal put away rate. Yeah, I mean, to, to answer the first part of your question, yes, I definitely was surprised by that. I thought it was going to be something that every year, you know what I mean, like – you know, to go back to like, you know, the best pitch of all time in Mariano's cutter, like I'm sure that that was going to have a successful put away rate year over year. So I was like, oh, well, that's probably going to be the case for a lot of pitchers. So I was really surprised to see that there was as much fluidity there. Um, and, and that isn't to say that it should, you know, entirely be thrown out. It's just a matter of like, okay, let's view it uh, in terms of uh, of K rate. You know what I mean? Um, and then what, what was the, I, I got so excited about the first part of the question. I completely forgot the second part of the question. Sorry. What was it? If there were any pitchers who had a a more reliable put away put away rate with one pitch relative to their entire arsenal, where we could then point to that pitch being something that we believe as being something that does translate year over year. Yeah. Okay. So that's so I think you know to harken back to what DVR was saying, if it's like if if the foundation is the fastball. Right. If the foundation of the PAR is built upon the fastball, that gets me a little bit more excited in terms of sustainability. Right. Because if you look at the top 10 um, K percent minus PAR percent, uh, you, you see a bunch of guys who have elite fastballs. Garrett Cole, Blake Snell, Justin Verlander, Mike Clevenger, Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom. Uh, these are all guys. Actually, one guy who popped out, which was very interesting, was Vince Velasquez. I don't know how I feel about that <laughs> quite yet. Uh, but Chris Paddock actually rounds out the bottom of that list to make him even more complicated than we already have. So if there is that foundation of a fastball there I believe there can be more stickiness year over year with that particular pitch on the reverse side someone who has a very poor PAR on that fastball um which kind of gets me even more concerned about him is Trevor Bauer. Uh, it's really, really poor. Uh, so if there's not that foundation there and there's theoretically more fluidity in PAR on his breaking pitches in terms of year over year, then I, I get a little bit scared about what could be coming for him. Yeah, Bauer in particular is a pitcher who I think I'm probably just a little bit lower than the market or the field tends to be, and I don't think I have him anywhere yet and still plenty of time to get some more drafts in for this season and I think it's more of a 
proved to me that 2018 wasn't the career best year outlier by a decent margin. Like I think he mm-hmm. kind of owes that to us. I see a lot of similarities in how he's being treated in drafts to how we used to treat Chris Archer. They're very different pitchers. They get there a very different way. But um, you mentioned some concerns with the fastball in particular, but is there anything else with Bauer that, that gives you some pause? Outside of PAR, yeah, I mean it's it, it's I we developed this metric called true F strike, um, which is essentially F strike, but that removes balls in play, right? I think it's a little bit tricky when we look at F strike because it includes balls in play, and we don't want it to. We only want to see who's actually getting ahead in the count. Clayton Kershaw is a great example. It looked like he had a great F strike last year, but it was actually that he was giving up a lot of balls in play on first pitch. To return that to Bauer, in when he was having that successful year, he was getting ahead in the count a lot more. The more data we get on him the more it looks like that was kind of the exception to the rule he, he's not getting ahead in the count the fastball usage in OO counts uh, isn't really there as much anymore um, he had a career highs in CSW and zone rate and swinging strike on fastball in the zone so I, I and when you mix that with what I just said about how poor the PAR was on fastballs yeah it's it's not really kind of exciting yeah, we're not going to draw too much from his time in Cincinnati last year. 10 starts, 56 innings, but he did not get that AL to NL bump that we've seen so many pitchers previously get. So maybe uh, another tiny reason to not, you know, if that was the only thing, we wouldn't be too worried about Bauer, but another check mark against him potentially in 2020. Um, based on the conclusions that you drew in this article or, or the, the final piece that you came to, uh, how do you think the best way to use put-away rate is in pitcher analysis and projection uh, for the coming season? Yeah, that, uh, um, that's a great question. Um, there's two really two ways, right? Kind of like I said earlier. For your off-season analysis, um, you want to look at it in relation to K-rate, right? So Jason Collette and Alex Chamberlain had something that they kept talking about, which I think is really fantastic. Something to look at in your analysis is what's the gap between K-rate and swinging strike rate, right? And PAR, like you, you essentially want to see one and a half times the swinging strike rate equal the K-rate. Uh, and if not, there could theoretically be some problems there. PAR can really help you in your offseason analysis to either help explain that gap and whether or not there's going to be a regression there or not. And then in terms of in-season analysis, after 8 to 10 starts, go to the Baseball Savant page, and PAR is listed on every pitcher's uh, um, uh, Baseball Savant page. It's also going to be on pitcher lists leaderboards and see who's getting in rhythm with their particular arsenal because I think that'll be able to stick. You'll be able to stream those guys and... Hopefully win your leagues. Now, in, in the article we're referring to, you had a, a starting pitcher PAR leaderboard, and it's filled mostly with the kinds of names you'd expect to see on something like this, right? Garrett Cole at the top, Chris Sale was mm-hmm. second, Darvish, Bieber, Giolito all in the top five, Scherzer was right there at six, you know, Verlander and Bueller were inside the top ten. But there were definitely a few names that jumped off that page to me. Uh, Robbie Ray, I guess, isn't that much of a surprise because he's always missed bats. He just has other problems. But Matthew Boyd, I think, was the name that was probably the most surprising at the higher part of that list. Uh, What do you make of Boyd? Because I I think the second half from last season definitely spooked me uh, as far as being interested in in paying up for him as a SP4 type. You know, I I think his price is actually pretty fair right now. But uh, do you come away... Seeing him on this leaderboard kind of encouraged that he can turn things around after that that disappointing second half. 
One hundred percent. I mean, I, I I'm trying to contain my excitement because I <laughs> ha- am so in love with Matthew Boyd that it's probably not acceptable in 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 many states. Uh, I, I, he he's he. We, we call ourselves the Boyd Boys because last year we really got excited about what he was doing. Right, fastballs elevated and then sliders down and away, and guys just couldn't come up with it. And it didn't matter that he was throwing ninety-two miles an hour because he could locate with that pitch. Then that stretch happened where he gave up like eight home runs in four games, and everyone got concerned. Matthew Boyd still has the foundation of being able to put a fastball where he needs to. He went to drive line. He boosted his velocity up to ninety-three, ninety-four. If that was it, if he was doing ninety-four mile an hour fastballs up and sliders down and away, I. I'd totally be fine. He finally brought in a changeup. I saw Matthew Boyd throw a changeup to DJ LeMahieu in spring training that made him look absolutely silly. He also has a show-me curveball that he's sometimes able to throw for strikes. So if we're talking about a guy who has an elite slider, one of the best sliders in baseball, a fastball that he can put wherever he wants to with increased velocity, a changeup that opens up an entirely new part of the plate, and a show-me curveball that's able to get whiffs, we're talking about a guy who could return you fantastic value where he's going in drafts. The fact that he's on this PAR chart just with that slider-fastball mix alone, and now he's introducing two pitches which could theoretically be fantastic for him makes me really, really excited to own Matthew Boyd. Yeah, that changeup is something else uh, in terms of the, what it could add to his arsenal. It's not just going to be a sum of the parts. I think that it, the, the hole is going to be greater than that. One reason I've always been wary of Robbie Ray is because I just don't, I like auto fade lefties who don't throw changeups. So I think sure. you need something to keep to keep the righties honest. You need something that's going to dive away from them, and it always makes me a little bit concerned how often you're not going to have the platoon advantage when you are a left-handed pitcher. So I am with you. I love Boyd mixing in a changeup. Is there anyone else on this leaderboard? I'll just leave this open-ended to you uh, that you one you saw on here made you a little bit more excited about him going into 2020. Yeah, there's there's a few quick hits. Sonny Gray, he sticks out. The PAR and his curveball is really good, but not gaudy enough in my mind where it would point towards regression. He's not super efficient with the PAR and his slider, but because there's more malleability on the PAR year over year, I think the PAR could actually take a step forward towards his K rate, which is actually really good. Steven Strasburg, man, in a shortened season where we don't have to worry about injury, we're talking about a guy who boosted his curveball, uh, curveball rate. It's getting higher each year. His changeup uh, and... His changeup PAR had a little bit of a gap between that and his K rate, meaning that just like Sonny Gray, it could take a step forward. He's also been increasing the usage of that changeup a little bit, so I'm really excited about him. And then a little bit deeper, Kyle Gibson. I, I, I you know, the metrics on, uh, for him in terms of PAR are really, really great when it comes to that slider, which is already a fantastic pitch. I love the new environment he's in. And then I, I believe he was dealing, didn't he have E. coli last year or something? Sounds. I remember him having something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was it was something along those lines. It was yeah. It was something like that. He said he went to Texas. They gave him like a full time nutritionist, and now he's on this plan. He says he's feeling better than he's ever felt before. Which I'm a little bit more prone to believe that it's not just a soundbite when he's like literally recovering from E. coli. <laughs> you know. So yeah. I, I'm excited about him as well. Yeah, I, I think there. This is something Eno and I have talked about a few times on rates and barrels. There are some teams that have kind of proven in the last couple of seasons that they have a, a better plan for pitching than we might have thought. I think Texas is one of them. Uh, Cincinnati, pretty clearly, Derek Johnson and, and Driveline and the things they put together there. We saw those results immediately last year. Minnesota, where Gibson came from, they seem to get it now as well. Do you have any teams that you kind of look at for this season who seem to be getting it now that maybe didn't get it in the past? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, to, 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 to quote your partner, I think Seattle does some actually really exciting things, which gets me excited about what could happen with um, maybe Yusei Kikuchi. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very wary. I'm not going to be drafting him, but I'll be keeping an eye on him. I'll be excited to see what happens with Justin Dunn and with Justice Sheffield. That's kind of exciting to me. Um, yeah, Texas is a team. I mean, like to, to go even deeper there aside, Kyle Gibson, I think Jordan, um, not Jordan Laplo, who am I think of? Uh, J- uh, Lyles. Um, he he's very exciting. That curveball is is Jordan Lyles is a fantastic curveball. I'm excited to see what he can do there. And then of course you know Tampa. Like I'm just always gonna want to know what they're doing with their pitchers. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. And just for the record, I uh, I talked to uh, our Indians beat writer Zach Mizell a couple of weeks ago about their outfield logjam and. Jordan Luplo, we're talking about pitchers here, but Jordan Luplo might be someone you want to uh, keep in mind. He was pretty excited about uh, Luplo when he was going to be coming back from injury and uh, what he could bring uh, to that Cleveland outfield, the team that uh, seems like they've been in need of a corner outfielder uh, since like David Justice uh, retired. <laughs> David Justice left Cleveland. So uh, just for, for your deep, uh, deep hitters, maybe keep Jordan Luplo uh, in mind. Uh, uh, Alex, let's move on to the other article we want to talk to you about. This is something you wrote a couple of weeks ago. And this is something actually that our colleague Al Melchior and I uh, talked about a little bit on an episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15 a few weeks ago. The uh, headline of this is we've drafted saves wrong again. I think it's something that uh, we, the, the, the headline is well taken because it does seem like there's this never ending conversation about when you want to dive in to the closer pool, when you want to be targeting saves, is it a category you can punt? Is it something that you want to go out and get Josh Hader and make sure you've got that rock-solid closer uh, to lead your bullpen? There's a lot of different uh, ways to go about it. It seems like there's never been a consensus around it. I'm going to put it to you uh, again the same way I did with the first one. Can you please just summarize how we screwed this up yet again? Totally. Uh, Last year, the top three closers off the board by aggregate of ADP data were Edwin Diaz, Blake Trinan, and Craig Kimbrell. I mean, is that that to me is the most succinct way to (laughs) to summarize (laughs) how how we screwed it up. Yeah, they finished 15th, 22nd, and 37th in terms of saves last year. And they were the top three closers off the board. When are we going to learn? All of us. (laughs) What are we going to yeah. learn? Last year, more more sa- more relievers got saves than ever before in the history of the league. Last year, there were fewer saves total recorded than I believe in the past decade, especially if you remove three innings pitched saves. Okay, so there's more relievers getting saves. There are fewer uh, saves overall, and we're still drafting him like everything is the same. The the one question I actually can't stop thinking about that I really want to put to you guys because you're obviously incredibly smart fantasy baseball minds is how do we approach this with a shortened season are 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 managers going to be more likely to use their firemen earlier on like in the seventh because they need to win games because there are fewer of them or is that not going to be the case and it's just going to be business as usual I think teams are going to be very aggressive this year with the shortened season. There's more variance, so mid-pack teams that maybe didn't have a good chance of making the playoffs over 162 have a much better chance of making the playoffs over 81 or 100 or whatever kind of season we might get. And I think teams are going to be quick to pull guys out of high-leverage roles when they're struggling. We're not going to have... You know, three or four bad outings costing someone a job. It might just be two. <laughs> Back-to-back consecutive outings might prompt a change. But the thing you hit on that I think is really different potentially is more teams might start to use their best relievers in optimal situations. Because if you look around league-wide last year, 
how many teams were managing their bullpen in the most efficient way possible? You could still probably count them on one hand, right? Do you trust half the league to do that? That'd be a pretty big increase, right? If you go from four or five teams managing the bullpen in the optimal sort of way to 15, that's a big change. I just wonder if there's enough teams that actually do that. Uh, So my initial reaction to all of this shortened season mistakes we've made in the past on closers is to really try and hone in on one of the top eight or ten closers. And even being really careful with someone like Kirby Yates, who doesn't have that really long track record, even though what he did last year was so impressive. And I think I told you about this before NL Labor. This is about the time I think you maybe wrote the piece. I was going to go into that league, which is a 12-team NL-only league, and buy one closer and then just take my chances at the bottom of the pool. And I made myself a liar within the first hour of the auction (laughs) because I bought Josh Hader and Kenley Jansen. I was price enforcing on Jansen. Wow, a huge liar. Huge liar. Yeah, Yeah, I I, I spent just as much. (laughs) I, I overspent on closers in the league last year, one despite making a big mistake, and I talked about it with Eno the day before the auction. I'm like, yeah, I made a pretty big mistake. I bought Jansen and Knable last year, and I didn't need to try to buy that many saves. Knable got hurt. Anyway, that was the one flaw, the biggest flaw in my design for my roster last year. And I went ahead and repeated it after saying I wasn't going to repeat it. And it just made me think, okay, did I screw this up again? Or is Josh Hader kind of different? Because I don't necessarily look at him as a guy who's going to get 30 saves over a normal season with Corey Knable healthy. I think they may split those opportunities more than people realize. But Hader is plus-plus in terms of strikeout rate. He can be plus-plus in ratios. His floor is pretty high there as well. And if he's used as a fireman, you know he's giving you a lot more innings than the typical reliever. Now, in an NL-only league, that plays a lot differently than a 10-team mixed league, too. So maybe that was a, a league situation where... I convinced myself that my mistake wasn't as damaging as if we were playing in a shallow mixed league. Uh, but anyway, I, I think my my general approach is to still try and get one of the closers that I trust and then pick my spots very carefully, maybe you know, taking a, a late dart on someone who's not named Nick Anderson in Tampa Bay's bullpen where we know things are really volatile. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what are you going to do, Beller? Like what's, what adjustments, if any, are you making to the possible, the likely shortened season? Um, you know, I, I feel like I've been one person who's been pushing back on there being a huge necessary adjustment to make based on the shortened season. There's going to be some things that you have to do, right? And I think that you're right that teams are going to be uh, more aggressive in the way that they deploy all their resources, especially their pitchers. Uh, you can uh, use your starters in different ways. You can use relievers in different ways, not only because there is going to be uh, fewer games, but because uh, the rosters we know are going to be bigger. Uh, at least at the start of uh, whatever this 2020 season ends up being. So you have a little bit more flexibility uh, with your pitching resources. So I do think you have to make some changes there. Uh, the one thing that I've pushed back on uh, is that, you know, we know that you know, ba- baseball is 162 games for a reason. I'm, I'm actually, I'm personally resistant to the idea of reducing the number of games in a normal season. I think that uh, the vagaries of baseball beg to be smoothed out over 162 games and that it needs to be as long as it is for the cream uh, to rise in the way that we become accustomed to and the way that I think we all want to. Uh, but because of those vagaries, we know that someone's going to have a hot two months here and a down six 
six weeks there. It's going to happen to a lot of guys. So I think that trying to predict who that's going to be, who's going to have the hot two months that make up what is the entirety of the 2020 season is a fool's errand. So I haven't been changing uh, my uh, thinking in how I was going into this season too much. I do think, though, that the guys who are going to benefit the most, the guys who I think we can say with a degree of certainty that we can act on, are going to benefit are the firemen, are guys like Ryan Presley, who is going to be used in, in, in a very aggressive role in Houston no matter what. And he might not save a game for that team, but I think he's going to be very valuable in fantasy because of the strikeout rate, because of the ratios. Players like that, I think you should be trying to boost even if you're not going to count on them for saves. Everyone else, for me personally, I'm going to be treating them the same way I would have had the season started back on March 26th. I just think it's too hard to try to draw those conclusions and assume that we know this guy's going to have this effect from an 80-game season compared with a 162-game season. There is one thing you said, though, DVR, and uh, Alex, you mentioned it in the column, and this this one surprised me too, organizational trends at the closer position. I was surprised to see so many teams have these, excuse me, these these trends that have uh, superseded multiple regimes over a long period of time where they just haven't had the sort of fidelity to their start of season closer that other teams have. Yeah, it's, it was really exciting for me to find, too. It was also exciting to see where the organization would kind of step in overall and where they would kind of let the manager take over. You know what I mean? Like, you could kind of see kind of clear managerial trends. Like, Kevin Cash was a great example. Like, it seemed like when Kevin Cash came, there was no capital C closer quite as much for the Rays, despite the fact that they had guys who could theoretically do it. They had guys who had the stuff. Last year, the Rays, and I believe it was the Braves, had 11 different relievers record a save which was which was the most by far um and and other organizations uh that i think are really pertinent to this conversation the one that really comes to mind is the oakland athletics right last year everyone was like blake trinan's the guy blake trinan is 100 percent the guy this year they're saying the exact same thing they're just putting liam hendricks in where blake trinan was for the past 12 years the oakland athletics have not had consecutive saves leaders the last time they had a consecutive saves leader was grant balfour that's the last time they had back-to-back saves leaders okay so i don't know like listen liam Hendricks has electric stuff he also has velocity that sort of came out of nowhere and who knows if that goes away the texas rangers have not had back-to-back slaves leaders in 12 years okay so who knows what happens there uh i'm just not really willing to, to bank on some of those guys on the positive side the reds like to stick with their closer, which makes me more optimistic about Rysel Iglesias. The Tigers, they got rid of Shane Green in the middle of the year, and that's usually in a position where you would see, okay, maybe we'll try this reliever for a save, maybe we'll try this reliever. No, the Tigers stuck with Joe Jimenez, and I believe they're going to stick with Joe Jimenez no matter what. The Padres, they also really like to stick with their guy. And to return to the managerial front, I think there's something really important to note about Philadelphia. When Gabe Kapler came in, there were some injuries that he had to deal with, but he liked to pass the buck around in terms of save. What does that mean for both the Giants, where he is right now? What does that mean for Tony Watson and guys like Tyler Rogers? And then what does that mean now for Philadelphia, who now has Girardi, who liked to stick with his guy, albeit he had you know one of the greatest closers in the history of baseball for a little while, and then Araldis Chapman after that. But what does that mean for Hector Neris? In my opinion, he's a guy who's going a little bit later that I'm interested in taking. He has that elite splitter, and I think if he can hold on to it, he can keep that job. Hold on to that splitter, I should say. Uh, he can keep that job for, for the majority of the season. Yeah, I think you're right to be skeptical of Liam Hendricks, though, in, in particular. And 
it does make me think twice even about like Hansel Robles because last year came out of relative nowhere for him too. He cut the walk rate pretty much in half from what we'd seen for, for most of his career. Strikeout rate wasn't off the charts high. It was just kind of good, not great, kind of low for a shutdown reliever at least. I think the only thing that makes me a little more confident in Robles is that I don't have to pay quite as much in drafts to get him as I do to get Liam Hendricks. That's a great point. I, I would also highlight that Madden is there now, who liked to stick with his guy a little bit more when he was with Chicago. And then, uh, like, he's a little bit interesting because it's not like he's in, in San Diego where, you know, theoretically, uh, if, if you know, um, Yates struggles a little bit, they have Emilio Pagan, who's elite, and they have Drew Pomerantz, who could definitely get the job done. In, in L.A., I don't really feel good about Ty Buttery and Kenyon Middleton. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I think he could stick with, uh, I think Madden could stick with Robles for a good amount of the season. You mentioned Atlanta as one of those teams that's been uh, willing to bounce around last year, uh, certainly with a team that had the uh, the 11 guys record a save, as you said. Now we've got Will Smith uh, in Atlanta. Mark Melanson enters the season, at least, as the uh, the nominal closer. Uh, Talked to David O'Brien, our Braves beat writer, about this, and uh, he said that Brian Snitker really likes Melanson, likes what he did for the team last year, and, and is certainly going to hand him the reins uh, to the closer's job at the start of the season. But we also know what Will Smith has done in his career. Sort of sneakily, one of the best relievers in baseball of the last, like, five years. Will Smith has just been this very, uh, minus the injury season, very consistent guy. A guy who came back from the injury seemingly stronger. I, if I had to bet right now, I would bet that he ultimately ends up leading that team in saves, which is why I, I had a lot of him before the league shut down. I have one more auction uh, to do once the season does start up again, and I will be targeting him in that league as well. Wondering who your favorite closer and waiting targets might be going into the season. Yeah, um, just a quick thing on Smith, too. He went after pick 400 last year and got you, I think, over <laughs> 20 saves. So, so Over that's, 30, that's right? Really... Yeah, over Did 30. Like yeah, th- I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. He had 34, I think. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a great point. Um, uh, I am, sadly, uh, I have been um, an Orioles fan my entire life. Um, Yeah, I know. It's a a tough life I lead, but at least I know what what pain and futility are um, all too well. So, but that actually gets me excited about Hunter Harvey. Uh, This is a dude who had electric stuff before dealing with his injuries, and look no further than that mullet to know that he's going to get you some saves. You know what I mean? Mullets always equal (laughs) saves. Um, Other guys, too, uh, uh, we kind of hit on him briefly. Tyler Rogers, I think, is an an interesting name. He's got such a funky arm slot. Um, uh, uh, It is Tyler, right? I always get him and his brother Taylor confused. Taylor's in Minnesota. Tyler's in San Francisco. Uh, Okay, good. Uh, He's got such a funky arm slot, and I think Watson could be used more in a fireman role. Anyone, as DVR said, after Nick Anderson, like Diego Castilla and Jose Alvarado. And then pay attention to what the heck is going to happen in St. Louis. I really don't think Giovanni Gallegos ends the year with the most saves there. I think it could be Ryan Helsley. Uh, who knows? It could be Alex Reyes with this shortened season. Um, so that's another organization to kind of uh, keep in the back of your mind. And last but not least, Brandon Kinsler. He's got great stuff. Miami's not a terrible team. They're not as bad as they used to be. That staff is actually pretty good. And their offense, one through five, isn't the worst I've ever seen. So they're going to win a few games, and Kinsler could get you some saves. Yeah, Giovanni Gallegos is, uh, I don't know if he's a blind spot for me or, or what exactly it is, but another player who I've basically just ignored in drafts. It just hasn't worked in a way where he's been sitting at the top of my draft list and it made sense for me to take the chance on him. The Cardinals are a weird team. They just didn't do a lot 
this offseason. They lost Marcelo Zuna. That probably opens up a spot for Dylan Carlson. But I think the other guy in that rotation who I, I was thinking about at one point, and I, I almost like him more as a reliever, even though I think he can still be a good starter, is Carlos Martinez. What do you make of him with the move back into a starting role? Yeah, it's so hard to gauge when you're, you know, when you when you're looking at a full year's worth of analysis out of the pen last year. Um, I don't know how much of a dip in velo we're going to see when he returns to being a starter. He was sitting 96 and a half out of the pen last year, sitting 96 when he started in 2017. So I think the velo is still going to be be there. Um, it's tough to tell what's going to happen in terms of pitch utilization. Uh, when he was a reliever, he saw that sinker usage reach what was a career low since 2015. Probably going to come back a little bit. I still think there's a lot of really good upside for him. Why I don't know why he couldn't be a mid to low three ERA pitcher with a solid, you know, the solid three pitch mix behind him. The K rate obviously isn't going to be near what it ended up with last year, but I don't know. I, I'm hoping they finally say yes, he's a starter no matter what. And then depending on where he falls, I think at his current ADP, I'm interested because there is still some really nice upside there for him. Alex, uh, you oh, say you're sorry. A- I can't say upside DVR. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. He hates it. He hates I know. it. You started know. this off saying how you love listening to us. You're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Before we got on, you love, you're so thankful, and now. You Ugh. use that no-no where Derek's never letting you back on. That's it. I know. It. I feel <laughs> absolutely terrible. I feel terrible. It's like terrible. the Pee Wee Herman, the word of the day. We're all going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's proof uh, that he listens to the show, right? Yeah. I mean, like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. clear proof. Still, it's a uh, tough well, habit to break. Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. So is uh, Derek's a Brewers fan. I'm a Cubs fan. So so is our wish casting that this is the year that the Cardinals are <laughs> absolutely hopeless. Uh, maybe it'll maybe it'll prove to be true. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Alex, uh, we're going to wrap things up here. Thanks so much for joining us. You can find Alex on Twitter at AlexFast8. Alex, this was excellent. Uh, we love all your work in Pitcher List. We will be reading. And uh, you like being on, but we loved having you on too. So thanks for joining us, man. You guys, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That will do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can get Derek on Twitter at Derek Van Riper. I am at M. Beller. Uh, the podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, basically anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And if you're on a platform that gives you the freedom to leave a rating and a review, we would greatly appreciate it. If you are an Athletic subscriber, we really do appreciate you sticking with us through this time without sports. We're going to uh, try to bring you as much as we can, whether it is sports as normal or just a distractions we really appreciate you sticking with us through all this if you are not a subscriber to the athletic you can go to theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast and activate yourself a 90 day free trial to the website get everything that we offer across the entire suite of sports the athletic fantasy baseball podcast returns on monday until then have a great weekend (laughs) 